Strap yourself in because we're set up, switched on, and ready to go. Sit down if you need. The hits just keep on coming. It's voices up close. Here is your host, Mark Benton. We're here for the conversation, stories, and things you may not know. It's fresh, it's Voices Up Close, and we're back with a new episode. Voices Up Close, available on demand 24-7. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter at Benton underscore Mike. Reach me there. Glad to have you along for the ride once again. So if you'd like a story of a rise in the broadcast booth with a little faith involved, let's meet Josh Bogorod today. He'll be entering Season 3 as play-by-play voice of the Dallas Stars. Eighth year already with the organization. You can find Josh on Twitter at Josh Bogorod. They're weeks off their first trip to the Stanley Cup Final in 20 years. Wrapping up a year we're not afraid to call bizarre for 2020, that is. But for Josh, the silver lining in a year filled with challenges, new adventures, and an office shared in common with many broadcasters who couldn't be in the same arena as their teams competing for the Cup inside a playoff bubble with no fans. I share this. Josh is as top-notch of a human being as they come. You meet him and immediately feel at ease with his warmth. You feel energized by his ability to articulate. So in this conversation, you'll find that we could go on and on for hours. This made me proud to call Josh a friend for 10 years because our careers and lives have intersected so much. I'll just get this out of the way. We came up to the ECHL together, worked the same job in Alaska, and for three years, me for two years. And we also grew up 30 minutes apart in the Los Angeles area and, by coincidence, married our spouses exactly one day apart. So it's helped me understand his story even more. Seven years ago, he left the Aces as play-by-play announcer for a radio co-host job on the Stars' flagship station, And with that, no guarantees of ever jumping back into the play-by-play chair ever again. It was a leap of faith thing. However, he and his wife, Andy, weren't moving to unfamiliar territory. They previously lived in Corpus Christi, Texas, when Josh worked in the now-defunct Central Hockey League. So as time moved on, the door opened wider for Josh, and he seized opportunity becoming the new play-by-play voice for Stars Hockey two years ago. Watch or listen to his broadcast. He brings it from all areas. Energy, warmth, crisp delivery, and cohesiveness with honor partner Daryl Ray, also known as Razor, that makes you feel like you're enjoying a relaxing beverage with them. Very important traits to be an effective broadcaster. So over the years, Josh has voiced some great moments, including the Stars' mind-blowing run to the Cup Final in the playoff bubble this year. Before we get Josh on the line, let's take a listen. Seven seconds left, down into the corner, sent wide, four seconds left. Hey, Alaska, clear off the mantle. The Kelly Cup is coming home. The Alaska Aces are the 2011 Kelly Cup champions. Turn out the lights. Lock up when you leave. Collision ban, and now here comes Sagan with speed. Dropped. Radulov across. Klingberg shoots. He scores! Rope hits, up high for Klingberg, fake the shot, one time, Gurionov, he scores! Denis Gurionov, the Stars win game five, they win the series, they win the West, and the Dallas Stars are headed to the Stanley Cup final! 
Josh Bogorod, voice of the Dallas Stars, joins us here on Voices Up Close. Josh, great to hear from you once again, buddy. What do you make out of the year 2020? <laughs> it's uh, unexpected. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's been it's been surreal. It's been crazy. It's been unlike anything I ever could have predicted. Um, for me personally. Uh, professionally kind of falls into that group as well with uh, what the Stars did this year and and the way the season paused. And at the time, we didn't know if it was going to be a pause or just a flat-out ending. Um, But it's it's weird, and it's – I don't feel like I needed anything to put things in perspective for me. I feel like 2020 is – just sort of reaffirmed a lot of things that you know I focused on and what's important and it's uh it's just been an absolute crazy time and um I I, it's kind of hard to classify uh, aside from that it's just been something else when the season was paused in March I know you've got a lot of family to take care of first and foremost did that allow any time for you to do something else that you haven't had a chance to do I mean, not really, because if you go back to that time, it was it was such a crazy time. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like hockey stopped and the rest of the world kept going. We all were in the same car that just slammed on the brakes at the exact same time. So, um, I mean, it was a lot of just staying at home and and just being with my family. And and that's kind of what I was hinting at a little bit earlier. Like I. My, my family has always, when I was a kid and, and it was me and my parents and my brother, um, it was the most important thing in my life. And now that I've, I've created a, a family of my own with two kids and, and my wife, like it is always the number one part of my life. And even in a job, in an industry, in a line of work that doesn't always allow it to be number one every single day, I, I try and make it my priority. So, so when, when the pause hit, it was, it was all of us just trying to figure out the world. I mean, I've got two school-aged boys and we weren't sending them to school anymore. And obviously I wasn't going and calling games and we weren't going out and seeing friends. And I mean, everything stopped. So um, when you're a father, I think you just kind of go into survival mode and make sure that it's uh, it's as good for for them as it can be. Uh, it's also, it was a scary time. I mean, with with the uncertainty of a pandemic and and the virus that we were learning about kind of hour by hour. So it, it didn't really afford us the opportunity. It's not like, all right, guys, all of a sudden it's a brand new off season in the middle of March. Like let's, let's run off to Orlando and hit up Disney world. It it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of pause. It was more like, um, all right, you guys, let's make sure you're okay. And, and, and we still have a lot of fun and we're having fun differently and we're doing it together. Let's make sure we're safe and let's make sure we can take care of ourselves and each other and our, our extended family and friends and our loved ones. And, and that's, it's kind of just, it's the only mode I think you could go into. And that's the mode we went into. What was the most important thing on the list of dad duties, bath time, bedtime, or dinner time? Uh, well, you got to remember this was this was sixty nine games into an eighty two game season for us, where I'm gone half the time. So, so if I'm home and it's not a game night, um, I, I better be on at least two of those. <laughs> so, so I was home and there weren't any game nights. Um, 
because usually that's what would happen. I mean, I, you know what it's like, Mike. You get Ugh. off the road and you get off the road from a seven-day trip and like it, it's bath time and it's bedtime and it's like, honey, I got this. Like, take take some time off because I won't have the luxury of giving you any of this time next week. So it was, I mean, it was strange because it, in some ways it – it felt professionally a little bit like the first few weeks of an offseason um, when you're just going there's three to four games a day for six to eight months and then all of a sudden there just aren't any games so I had experienced something like that professionally but then you'd, I'd never experienced it with everything else that was going on in the world so we were kind of just we were figuring it out as we go, but I, I can't give you the exact count, but I promise you there was a lot of dinner time, bath time, and, and bedtime going on for me right then. You just put the phone down and say, honey, I got this here. Yeah. Uh, see, I mean, when you're gone as much as, as we are, it's the it's the only way you can. It's uh, the only way you can. You, you, you and I go way back basically 10 years now, and the amount of times that we've intersected is absolutely crazy from – being married to our spouses a day apart, uh, crossing paths in Alaska, growing up not too far out of the Los Angeles area. I mean, hey, life is funny. We're dads now, as you said. We've also indulged in different sports away from hockey. How'd you enjoy the World Series? <laughs> it was, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I, I mean, for anyone tuning in, you mentioned that I'm originally from Los Angeles. I, I grew up, I grew up a Dodgers fan. My dad, is from New York originally, and he grew up a Dodgers fan, and his father grew up a Dodgers fan, and so they. I mean, that's something that that was passed down. Um, it's really the only sports team that had been passed down generations in my family, and so in a really weird twist to have the 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 shortened Major League Baseball season happen, and then have the World Series and NLCS bubbles be here in Dallas and um, and actually like get to experience like that happening here in the city where I'm now raising my family and, and I, I've passed that along to them. It was it was pretty cool to see that and it was it was my oldest is eight years old and the last time the Dodgers won the World Series, I was eight years old and that was that was the Gibson year in nineteen eighty eight. So to kind of know that I remember where I was when that home run was hit and I remember what it felt like to watch them finish it off and win it and that it hadn't happened since then and then I was getting to see my kids reactions to that was uh I mean that was a pretty cool sports moment for me personally as as a fan because you don't always get to experience moments as a fan when you do what we do for a living it was it's pretty nice to just be a fan with my family at that point I shared the same thing with uh, Lucas my five-year-old Liam at the even at the age of two right at about bedtime here and you think about it, there may not be another time in your life you can say that you took the family for a short car trip to Game 7 of the NLCS, then Game 1 of the World Series. So this year seemed pretty special. As a fan, how safe did you feel with family sitting in Globe Life Field, mass capacity, 11,000? Yeah, it, I mean, it, that was interesting. And we, we, we really shut down, personally. I mean, everybody handled it their own way, but... Mm-hmm. We didn't. We didn't know in March when everything paused. We didn't know what what was going to happen with the season, and we knew that we were not going to be playing NHL games for a while. But we didn't know when we would come back. We didn't know um, 
what type of effects, you know, contracting the virus could have on you short term or long term. The players were kind of instructed to, to take it seriously and be in a bubble. And we weren't in that same realm, but but we we took it seriously for a lot of reasons. So we kind of just stopped doing much of anything. I mean, me and my wife, we didn't we didn't go out for meals and um, we didn't see people. And we have really close friends here in Dallas. We didn't see it's the longest I've ever gone without seeing uh, my parents who are back in California. And um, so there is a lot that we we didn't do. And so we always kind of joked around as the days turned into weeks and then turned into months. And then all of a sudden the schedule just went to a breakneck pace when we did return to play. And even though I wasn't in Edmonton, we were calling the games remotely from Dallas. It was I mean, you were playing every other night maximum with back to backs. It was it was on average more than a game every other night. And so there wasn't really much time to do anything at that point. And we always used to hypothetically wonder, like, what's the first thing we're going to do when we finally break our own little bubble? And um, I promise you, we never <laughs> we never anticipated that being that being it. But uh, by a twist of fate, it was in Dallas. I have I have some some friends at the Rangers and um, who were involved in the the setup and I asked a few questions and wanted to make sure that it would it would feel safe and I mean we didn't know so we kind of went in wondering what it would be like and I think they did a fantastic job I mean everybody they they distanced out it's amazing when you it's a brand new ballpark nobody had ever been in there but it's pretty amazing when you take a facility um, that's built present day and so you're already doing a good job of, of spacing it out and, and expecting that you're going to have packed houses. And it's built for 45,000 people, and you cut that by three quarters. It's really wild how how much space you actually feel like you do have. Um, and then they, they made the decision to have it open air with the retractable roof, and they kept that open whenever they could, weather permitting. Um it's different to go to a ball game, though, when, I mean, I remember an, an inning would end and I could go and take the kids to the restroom and we could grab a, a popcorn and a soda at the concession stand and come back and still have not missed a pitch. And I felt like <laughs> felt like I was in some, like, sports alternate universe because, like, how could that happen, let alone in a game of that magnitude? Um but it was it's like everything else. It was like the way we, we went through our, our Stanley Cup playoff run. Mm. I mean anytime anytime I get asked a question about twenty twenty and, and how weird was it to experience it like this? How weird like yeah, that's kinda like the motto of twenty twenty. Yeah. Like how could how could it be anything but something you couldn't have in your wildest dreams imagined a couple of years ago? And and that's what that was, but I know the owners wouldn't like it and in the atmosphere it didn't it didn't feel like what a packed house yeah. playoff game should feel like and so you had 11,000 people there and the crowd was split like 50-50 or 60-40 <laughs> so when you think about it like the, the biggest points of the game in some points the biggest moments of franchise history you've got like five or six thousand people there cheering and it's uh I mean, that's it was it was different, but it was also Mike. It was so great to feel anything close to quasi normal again in a sports vein, in any vein, honestly, like just getting getting in your car and and going on an outing. um, 
and and sports play such a big role in our lives but but to experience that again and just like even though it wasn't the same and even though it wasn't what what it could have been and if if we weren't living in a time like this it was so nice to just dip your toe into a normal pond again and it um it, it was pretty cool we're gonna get back to there for hockey sooner than later here biggest difference between calling a game in front of roughly 18,000 fans versus a studio what is it <laughs> oh my god there's there's so many the biggest one i mean it's probably like twofold because there's there's the atmosphere or or lack thereof it is i mean it's as night and day as you can get um so that in terms of what it's like calling there were so many big moments that that we called and then you let the moment breathe a little bit and you look around and you're kind of in like a glorified like closet (laughs) it's uh it's just it's so it's so weird that these moments happened and you know that those are going to live forever and and in some capacity your call will be attached to them and you you look at your surroundings and it's it's instantaneously crazy um but then technically speaking that's the biggest difference in terms of of you know not being in the arena and and what you're missing but technically speaking um you don't get to control what you see Mm -hmm. and you've called i i'm guessing over a thousand games in your career like i have and in every single one of them prior to this year i was in charge of where my eyes went i was in charge of what i got to see and there's things that you want to keep up with there's there's trailers on a three-on-one that aren't in the screen yeah and not only do you not know that they're there but you certainly don't know who they are when you're limited to uh the screen in front of you um I, being able to identify things that happen before a team sets up for a face-off just so you can kind of get your bearings of who's on the ice and, and um, watching what a player is doing or where they're setting up. When we did the games in the first round, they did a really good job of recognizing that television broadcasters needed to work with whatever they had, so they sent a lot of feeds down the line. Mm-hmm. For our specific team in Dallas, we are a TV and radio simulcast. So we do the TV and radio production from the exact same spot. So it was a TV slash radio production in the opening round. And you had different camera angles where you could see something. So you're glancing to your left and seeing one camera. You're glancing to the right and seeing another camera. And and it's hard to keep up with in real time. And it's not exactly the same. But you still had more than one view. After the first round, when the national rights holders for television took over, all of that went away. Hmm. And so when we reverted to a strictly radio broadcast for rounds two, three, and four, we got one feed. And so it's basically like you sitting on your couch, hitting mute, and broadcasting a Stanley Cup playoff game. And that's what we did. Um, And that was very, very different. And, And I mean, very, very different technically. But we did so many games by the end that it became less and less strange and I, I think we're all creatures of adaptation so this was no different 
you get used to it. And it was also really easy to just roll with it because of what we were talking about earlier. It's 2020. How can you yeah. possibly sweat the the logistics of it? We were just so happy to be doing the games again. But the lack of atmosphere and then the lack of wanting to see whatever you want to see was a pretty pretty far cry from any type of game I had ever done before. 2020. Let's get weird. How did that affect your ability to memorize players and appropriately identify them, especially when you get to round two and you go from multiple angles to just one when it starts versus Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, you really you really start to become more or less of a fan of certain jersey numbers and fonts um, because you're at the mercy of whoever you're playing. When you need to see an when you need to see an arm patch, um, is that an is that an eight or is that a nine? <laughs> um, it, it didn't affect the memorization at all. I mean, I prepared for the games exactly the same. I, 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 I didn't change one thing there in terms of preparation, in terms of learning the rosters and, and then doing your homework and, and getting the notes that you needed to get. Um, in terms of seeing, it affected. I mean, it, it truly did. But I, you, you know this in a way that probably a lot of people who haven't broadcast before sometimes especially in the minors where i spent a large portion of my career you're not in a terrific vantage point Mm. you're you're wherever you are so you have to deal with whatever viewpoint you have and even in the nhl some of these incredible buildings the press box is all the way at the top and you feel like you're another zip code away you've called a game in edmonton it's like you're eight miles high it's, I mean, Edmonton, and it's arguably the nicest arena. Yeah. Relatively just built it. And it's this incredible facility. And, I mean, we're calling games. And I, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's unthinkable that, that you're that far away. Um, but so you just, you, you deal with whatever you have. But it was, it was different. And there were definitely times where, you know, I, I gave that three-on-one example before. You learned that you needed to buy yourself an extra second somehow, and you figured out how to do that. Um, but it, there's there's this moment when you're watching a game on television, a, a puck gets rimmed around, and the viewer at home might always be wondering, is there a guy at the left point that's going to be able to hold the zone in time? Because you can't tell. You know the puck is going to make its way around to the blue line. Is there anyone there? The play-by-play broadcaster usually doesn't have to wait in suspense to uh, to know that. Um, this year, th- at least this postseason, we did. And it we learned how to do it. I, I think everybody that did it was in the same boat, and it was, it was different. But, again, coming from what we were dealing with in the world and the notion that we might not even get to finish the season – we were so happy to call games that you could you could recognize the differences and you could certainly note maybe some of the challenges without letting them bother you at all. I was so happy to, to see hockey again. I was so happy to be on the air again. I was so happy to provide an audience with a distraction again. Um, but it was different, and there's, there's probably no way around that. What's the best part about working on air for the Dallas Stars? How, how long is this podcast? No, I mean it's, <laughs> I, it's, it's outstanding. Um, 
It's great. It, and again, that's a twofold answer because I think that getting to do this, this was a dream that I've chased all over the, the continent for my entire life. Um, since I was the age that my kids are now, this is what I wanted to do. So to be able to realize that and, and to be able to, to do it and do it nightly is it's never lost on me how special it is. It, um, I don't believe it ever will. If you and I are doing a, a revisit of this conversation 50 years down the road, I think my answer would be exactly the same. I certainly hope it will. Mm. Uh, there was a there was a lot to get here, and there was a reason that it was all worth it. Just even having the chance of it, and so um, it's it's pretty special just to, to be able to do this for a living. Um, and then I cannot say enough good things about the organization here. And I've been here now for seven years, and. Um, it really, this organization feels more like a family than I ever thought it would at a level like this. It's one thing when you're in a minor league organization and there's literally eight staff members that do everything. It's it's easy to take on a family feel at that point because you are smaller than some families. Um, when you get up to this level, it's, it's spread out a lot more, but the people are just incredible. The passion that they have is amazing. Um, they care so much about what they're doing, about each other, about you. Um, I, I never thought I would love Dallas as much as I do. I, I candidly had only passed through. I didn't know a ton about the area here. I, I spent a lot of time in Texas, but not Dallas. And now I can't think of a better place to be raising my my family, you know, raising my kids, and, and living. And um, it's just, it's really. I feel like this this should be sponsored by Hallmark, but it's all true. Like I really, I'm I'm so thankful for so many parts of where I am right now, and 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 who I'm with right now. And it's. Uh, I just I can't say enough great things about this organization. And and the truth is, Mike, that I came here when I wasn't their play-by-play broadcaster. I came here in a different capacity, and my role has evolved quite a few times over the years into what it is now. And at every turn, the answer was exactly the same. And I think, I think that's probably a big reason why I feel that way. Um, it wasn't that I ascended to this position and then everything just seemed like it fit. It seemed like it fit from day one, and um, uh, I, I, I would imagine that I would be thrilled to be doing this anywhere for anyone because that was the dream, but I, I feel on top of so lucky that I get to do this, it's, it's even furthered by who I get to do it for and where I get to do it. The show. Time for the show here on Voices Up Close. Dallas Stars broadcast voice Josh Bogorod joining us appropriately now accompanied by Hallmark Christmas Music. We're all about the good feels here on this podcast. Josh, we're going to go through some of your top selected calls and games. This is going to be a fun trip down memory lane, so you tell us all about it as we uh, go through the calls and name them off here. 
one by one. This was your very first pro hockey broadcast way back in the CHL, the Central Hockey League Corpus Christi Rays against New Mexico of October 2003. Yeah, that was um, that was a special, a very special day for me. Um, I remember the date. I remember what it looked like. I remember the game. I remember how it went. Um, I remember how nervous I was. Sadly, I also remember how awful I was at, uh, at actually calling the game. Um, but when you're starting out, I, I had no idea that it would lead to the NHL. I mean, that was the hope all along, but realistically, I had no idea. And so when you're starting out, everybody starts somewhere. And I had done a little bit of broadcasting I had quite a bit of on-air experience, but truthfully not a ton of of play-by-play experience, Um, and especially for hockey. Even though I always wanted to do it, I never had the opportunity where I could. And so in college, it was just a handful of games I had done. And up until that point, I think I had called just – I don't even know how many, but probably fewer than – then they would have known when they hired me. Um, but but I, I, I got to do that game, and at, at the moment, with where I was in my life and in my career, that was achieving a lifelong goal. They, they paid me to do a broadcast of a hockey game that night, and, and they didn't pay me much. <laughs> and, and I don't think anyone listened, but, but for me, like, I that was pretty special and um and i i also love the fact that you know we're almost 20 years later and that's still pretty special for me um because because i remember remember what a big deal that was at the time and i also remember i remember the countdown the the 10 second countdown to when we first went on and i was so nervous um and i remember when i signed off um just thinking Man, it was it was as much fun as I wanted it to be, and I kind of never looked back. Dear listener, if you've ever put a headset on here for a job like this, this is certainly relatable. Uh, yeah. On to the next one here. More space on the mantle cleared off for what was back then a team of titles. The Alaska Aces win their second Kelly Cup championship at Kalamazoo in 2011. Six skaters for the K-Wings. Aces win the draw. Anderson. Trying to clear around the wall. Kept in by Davatilla. Now played. Hop top. McGinnis' shot. That one wide. 19 seconds left. The Aces' lead is two. Shot. Spenson sent it wide. 14 seconds left from the blue line. McGinnis, his shot goes wide. Coleman plays to the corner. Seven seconds left. Down into the corner. Sent wide. Four seconds left. Hey, Alaska, clear off the mantle. The Kelly Cup is coming home. The Alaska Aces are the 2011 Kelly Cup champions. Turn out the light, lock up when you leave. It's a mob scene. The Aces are the champions of the ECHL. There were three people, there are three people who know what it's like to call an Aces championship, and, and you are one of them. <laughs> Two are on this call here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be one of them. Um, that was that was really great. Um, I mean, it was it was great because it was the biggest call of my life at the moment. But it also was more than just a call. I I love that team. I'm still friends with people on that team. Um, 
like that was that was a really special group of guys and i remember that for so many of us obviously i'm not playing and and i didn't win that championship um i was just lucky enough to have a, a terrific front row seat for it but that was to date the only championship i've ever called and for most of our players not all of them but but like all but one um at the pro level that was their first championship and uh for the coaching staff it was their first championship and for the equipment staff which was all of two people like that was that was their first championship and for me it was the first one i got to experience and and it was the road to get there and how close that team got and it was my first year in alaska so it was a really life-changing year for me i got engaged um we moved to Alaska. Uh, we had that season. They got married right after it, uh, just like weeks after that. And um, that was that was really cool for a lot of reasons. And then, you know, getting to make that call, it's uh, that's that's the pinnacle for a broadcaster that works for a team. And it was uh, every part of that was special on the air and off the air and and in the rink and with those guys and um Still got to take some pretty cool pictures with that cup that uh, that I'll keep with me forever. Relatable for me in 2014 uh, with that gang, and also a shout out to our good friend Jack Michaels who had that honor also back in 2006. <laughs> now he, he was the trendsetter. He got the yeah. first one. <laughs> Jack's always a trendsetter. Uh, very next one here. Let's take a listen. Your first game after being named broadcast play-by-play voice of the Dallas Stars, Stars against Arizona in the 2018-19 season. The long off-season wait is finally over, and tonight hockey returns to Dallas. It's opening night as the Stars host the Arizona Coyotes. The Stars are eager to drop the puck on a season filled with promise, while the Coyotes hope this is the year they can step forward in their rebuild in the desert. Yeah, I mean, that that was that was so much fun. I mean, that was, again, a, an achievement of a lifelong dream. I had actually called two regular season NHL games on radio prior to that and each one of those was special because when I was working with the Stars and I wasn't a play-by-play guy, I didn't know if I had called my last game maybe um, and then getting to do my first NHL game was was a moment I'll never forget but that was the first time I actually did it as the play-by-play broadcaster for the Stars and um, it was such a whirlwind when I got the job that summer the months leading up to opening night it was like a this is your life episode for three months where people are reaching out to you that i mean you haven't talked to in a long time and and you know the outpouring of support and then during the game and then after the game i I think my text message count was (laughs) triple digits at that point it was it was so unbelievable and then there was a moment where it all ended and it was it was just sort of a that that really happened that actually just happened and then it's like all right now you got to get ready for another game 48 hours now that's going to keep happening uh it wasn't like calling one game and and then just it felt like it should be there was so much anticipation for me leading up to that game was like all right now we need another um but it was i mean it was uh, it was special it was just really, really special. And I will always 
be appreciative of Stars fans because for most of them, it wasn't the first time they had they had heard my voice, but for most of them, it was the first time they had heard me call a game and in in this new role. And I know that there are legendary broadcasters who have had this role with this team before I got here. And I know that for good reason, a lot of them were nervous when someone new and someone they didn't know much about was going to try and, and take over. Um, and I think that was part of what made it such an incredible night was afterwards seeing the outpouring from them and, and the support that I got from them. And then just the knowledge that, you know, it, it actually happened. Um, I mean, look, I, I know it sounds hokey, but I'm sure you can you can understand this more than most. You spend a lot of time on buses. Oh, yeah. And you spend a lot of time in late nights in random cities in weird situations, printing game notes at 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> all in the hopes that one day that might actually happen. And when it actually happened, um, it was it was pretty hard to describe. It was it was it was just incredible. Several months after that, on to the next call here. John Klingberg ends Game Six in overtime against the Nashville Predators in April of 2019. Collision ban, and now here comes Sagan with speed. Dropped. Radulov across. Klingberg shoots. He scores. That was, for the first year, that was such a cool way to end that first series. I mean, getting to call games is, is special, and then getting to call Stanley Cup playoff games. I think the Stanley Cup playoffs are the greatest things in sports. And, and so to be a part of that, and we were talking about the lack of atmosphere earlier at those baseball games. The, the actual atmosphere for a playoff game and that was the first time that the Stars had won a series on home ice in so long, in 10 years. Um, and so to, to, to be able to do that and to do it in overtime of what was just an incredible series and an incredible game, and it was a great moment for the fans and for the organization, and um, it was such a fun call to make, and it, it finished off what was a back-and-forth stretch of like three rushes mm. uh, for, for both teams, and so it was just this culmination in every way possible. And I will never forget what it was like. I called the goal, and then remember that was that was the first round. So that was a TV and radio broadcast. Yep. And and I called the goal, and then I laid out. And Razor, my my color partner, he laid out as well. And I think we went about a minute where the crowd was just deafening. And I, I remember in the moment, even though we were still on the air, just like looking around. And they, our press box in American Airlines Center is like the best view in the NHL. And you're, you're basically like right in the middle of the arena. You're in the second level. It's the 200 level of a three-tiered stadium. And so there's luxury suites above you, there's fans to the right, there's fans to the left, there's fans below you, and then there's an upper deck even further above you. So you really, it's not like most press boxes where you are at the back 
and the sound is all in front of you. Mm-hmm. You're you're really in the middle of the bowl. And it was just this incredible atmosphere. And I remember just looking around and thinking how cool this was, how happy I was for all of them, how happy I was to be there and, and be a part of it, and how happy I was that the season was going to continue. Um, and it was, it will forever be one of my favorite calls. And the fact that it happened, that was the last TV broadcast, that was the last telecast we did my first year. Um, we called the second round against St. Louis radio only. And Man, what a way to what a way to wrap up that TV season, that first one. That was that was spectacular. On to the next one, Josh. After this call, you tell me how cool it was to call this series. Joel Kiviranta ends game seven in overtime against the Colorado Avalanche just this past September. The overlap on the right wing Sekera. Behind the cage now. The defenseman's in deep. Andre Sekera fed out. Score! Kiviranta! You couldn't script it! Series winner in Game 7. And for the first time since 2008, the Dallas Stars are on their way to the Western Conference Final. It it was the craziest series I've ever seen. Um, It was the absolute craziest series I've ever seen. The, The number of goals, the number of plot twists, the number of injuries and second guessing and... Um, and, and, you know, the, the comebacks within games, the comebacks in the series that eventually forced it to a game seven. And then to have a guy who was supposed to not even be in the lineup play that kind of role. And then to have it be game seven of overtime in the second round. Um, both teams, the Stars and the Avalanche, went to game seven the prior season in the second round and that's where their years ended for the stars theirs ended in double overtime to st louis who went on to win the cup and there, there was always that thought of what if and, and for dallas it was the third time they were in a game seven of the second round in five years and they hadn't gotten past that point prior to that goal so there was so much at play there was the culmination of the series and then there was finally breaking through what had been a glass ceiling for this generation of the stars um and then there was the Kimi Ranta story which was as as insane as it gets um but I mean what a game the the avalanche took the lead the stars had to come back and tie the game in the closing 10 minutes of regulation. I mean, it was a crazy pants game, and I just was sweating watching from my couch. Yeah, how could you not? And then the Avalanche took the lead with four minutes to play, and then the Stars tied the game on the ensuing faceoff a couple seconds later, and then it goes to overtime, and of course it's, it's Kiwi Ranta. Um, it was it was nuts, and that's what we go back to earlier because that was a game. There were like that game and that moment happened, like an all timer, like hard to top, and then all of a sudden it ends, and it's like it was me and Razor in a room, and we're watching it play out on TV. I mean, it will forever be one of the greatest games I ever call, and I was 
1,600 miles away from it watching it <laughs> off of one monitor. It was so bizarre. Um, but I was, I was really, uh, I kind of just at that point, I was so happy to be a part of, of that, that series because it was, I mean, it was really, it was one that will go in the record books as one of the most entertaining uh, of certainly of this generation and, and the best one of that bubble in Edmonton. And it was, uh, it was pretty great to see them get that goal and to have it end that way, especially considering where they were just one season prior. Oh, but wait, there's more. Denis Gurionov ending overtime to send the Dallas Stars to the Stanley Cup final against Vegas in September. Spreads it out wide left. Rope hits up high for Klingberg. Fake the shot one time. Gurionov, he scores. Denis Gurionov, the Stars win game five. They win the series. They win the West. And the Dallas Stars are headed to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, how's how's that for absolutely crazy? When I when I first got the job, um, and that it's all started with that Klingberg goal the the first five series that I called for the stars four of them ended on an overtime goal and so it it almost became a game of like how how are you possibly gonna top what you just saw oh okay well that's how um and that was I mean that's a call that you grow up dreaming that you'll have the chance to make i remember remember playing roller hockey in, in as a teenager in southern california and screaming out mato 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 because it's how he rose and, and that was a conference clinching call in overtime and you know when you grow up wanting to be a hockey player you grow up wanting to score that goal when you grow up wanting to be a hockey broadcaster you grow up wanting to call that goal and so that was in all of these these goals as we relive them and we revisit them it's pretty unique because in the moment you understand the situation mm-hmm. but you're not really thinking about it in those terms you're keeping up with a game and you're calling a game and you don't know when it's going to end They'll forever live in highlights and 20-second snippets. But as you're going through it, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just calling a game into the night as long as it goes, never knowing when that signature moment is going to come. And it's only after that it starts to sink in that that, that actually just happened and, and you got to call that, that goal. And, um, I mean... It's, it's pretty it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to get to do. Stars won that game to advance on to the Stanley Cup final for the first time in 20 years. Been so long, and it feels surreal since that team with Madonna, Hole, Lettinen, and more nearly going back-to-back. How long was your phone buzzing after a game five against Vegas? It was pretty long. Um, it was, and and I, I loved every bit of it. Um I, I know I've said this before, and I apologize because so many of these situations, they carry over a lot of similar themes, but I was really happy for a lot of people there. And the players, again, this, this year's team for the Stars was very similar to that Aces team that we talked about. Yeah. Because 
most guys had not had not won before. Um, Sagan had, and Corey Perry had, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Everybody else um, hadn't, and aside from Joe Pavelski, nobody else had even been that far. Uh, and then you had the coaching staff as well, and you're dealing with a lot of guys who had never been there. John Stevens had, but Rick Bonus, he he had one, and um, you know, you, you, you're you're looking at a group that they were able to. It was validating for them. It was, and and I really liked that. I was so happy for them, so happy that that this organization was able to do that. Um, and then for me personally, yeah, you kind of just you sit back and, and you think about the last time the Stars were in the Stanley Cup final where I was in my life. I was in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was 20 years ago and I was I hadn't broadcasted a hockey game in my life at that point and never, <laughs> never in a million years would have predicted that I'd be doing the next Stanley Cup final game for the Stars. It's just it's a lot of it's a lot of thoughts when you go through signature moments like these and you're you're going through them in rapid succession here. But but each time they come, at least for me, I don't know how it is for everyone, but for me, you can't help but just sort of think back and and just appreciate the route it was to get there and and appreciate being able to be there for it. And uh, and the word that just continues to come to mind is is pretty special because with full recognition you realize that a lot of a lot of times just because you have a dream and you chase after it it doesn't work out when it does it, that that's exactly what it is it's it's special the work Word Association. Josh Bogorod, broadcast voice of the Dallas Stars, our guest here on Voices Up Close. Josh, we're going to go through a few people and places very important to you in your life. First thing that comes to your head, go ahead, let it roll. That works. All right. Number one, your parents and your brother. Um, I mean, the best support system that I, I ever could have had. I Neither one of or none of them are in broadcasting um and i know for certain that i would not be here right now if it wasn't for them uh, the, the support they gave me um at every turn growing up and and allowing me to sort of chase sometimes sometimes it seemed uh, foolishly chase after this um but they they were they were the best. I, I won the family lottery growing up, and, and it's continued that way into uh, my adulthood. But they have been far and away the greatest support system and, and the closest people in my life I ever could have asked for. Number two, Hall of Fame voice, now retired to the Los Angeles Kings, Bob Miller. And former former podcast guest. Yes. Yours. <laughs> so, Checks in the mail, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, he... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that Bob will ever know the impact um, that he had on me. We've, we've, we've become friends over the years, and I, I feel lucky to say that. Um, but, I mean, he was, he was probably the biggest broadcasting influence for me. I mean, he's, he was the soundtrack of hockey for my entire life as a child. And that was before the age of the internet. So you weren't scouring other teams' calls. You, 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 were, you were listening. If I was watching a hockey game, 
there is a very good chance Bob Miller was was the guy calling it, and he was he was so entertaining. I thought he was so technically sound, and then when I got to meet him, I don't know how it's possible because he was such a good broadcaster, and he is such a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just he's the greatest, and one of the coolest things when I. When I got the job um, in Dallas and they made me play-by-play broadcaster, a friend of mine from L.A. who candidly is not really a sports fan, they don't really know. I mean, I took this winding career path to all these remote places and did different jobs along the way. And so he, he was a really nice friend and he was just trying to keep up. And he was like, oh, my God, congratulations. Just so I'm clear, though. You're like the Bob Miller of Dallas now, mm. and um, mm. and my response was, I, I'm definitely not the Bob Miller <laughs> of Dallas, but I do have the same job for the Stars that he had for the Kings, and um, and that that was a pretty, like that was a pretty incredible thing to to have say to you, like have said to you because um, because that was what I wanted to grow up being was the next Bob Miller. I had funny. I, I got to tell Bob that story and <laughs> in typical Bob Miller fashion. He, he said, Oh, well, thank you very much. And, uh, tell your friend that he's my favorite of your <laughs> <laughs> number, number three. If, uh, any of you were old enough here to remember this and watch it, headbangers ball on MTV, Ricky Ratman and KLSX in Los Angeles. That was, that was the first time I got on the air. It was, it was a, wild happenstance uh, uh, set of circumstances that that led to me somehow becoming a Kings correspondent and a sports guy on a pretty successful Los Angeles radio show and I knew I wanted to get into broadcasting prior to that but I, I didn't know I didn't know the blueprint of how to get there and then I really just stumbled into this it wasn't supposed to happen and to do it on that stage it, it reaffirmed exactly that this was what I wanted to do and it was it was a nice way to be introduced into the industry and it wasn't anything like what I'm doing now it, it wasn't a sports show but just the feeling of being on the air and and the adrenaline rush of live broadcasting and learning anything, even what a phone sounds like when they click in and take you from the whole line mm-hmm. to actually on the air, uh, being in a studio and learning how I, I'm supposed to get near a microphone, just things I didn't know. It was it was a unique way to experience it all for the first time and um, a, a pretty nice jumping off point for it's amazing when you're first jumping on the phones at a very young age how that little surge of static when you go from on hold to on the air feels like a rush of adrenaline here. But no, people don't know that. It's uh, that's why that's why you always hear those awkward moments. You're like, am I on? Uh, am, I, am, am I on? Yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. You got to learn that early. Number four, University of Arizona. I mean, that was college, so it 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 goes without saying that it was a terrific time in my life it was a lot of fun and then from a broadcasting standpoint it opened up a few doors and a good piece of advice probably the best piece of advice and i've received quite a bit of it over the years um and it's it's a piece of advice that i give to young broadcasters now is do everything that you possibly can Hmm. because you don't know 
what job opportunities are going to open up and when that experience will cash in. And you also don't know what you'll like and what you won't until you do it. There's so many people that set out and think, okay, I want to do this. And then you start doing this and realize, actually, I don't really enjoy it. And it's better to learn that early. And it's also better to learn that when there's still time to pivot and you could do different things. So so when I was in Arizona, I did everything I could. You know, first week, I went to the campus radio station and, and got a sports show. And then I uh, went to this school newspaper and started writing anything I could. I was, mm-hmm. I was covering women's swimming and diving I, I didn't know anything about because that was a way I could get into it and and I was linked in with additional people who already had a sports show because there wasn't an open slot and I didn't take no for an answer at the campus radio station and one of them became one of my best friends and was in my wedding and it's like you don't know what's going to happen so you just do everything you can my first job with the hockey team in Arizona was as a, a ice level rinkside reporter and they had a play-by-play guy and they had a color guy and my play-by-play break happened when the normal broadcaster couldn't make it for a weekend set so it was me and the color guy and the color guy also wanted to do play-by-play so we made a deal that he would do two periods and I would do one for both of those games and it was games from that press box and and getting a chance to you know call some neutral site games for a national championship tournament that season that turned into a demo reel that led to my first play-by-play job that's why when i called that first game in corpus christi that we talked about last segment yeah. i i didn't have a ton of experience um but but what i had was enough to compile a a just truly terrible play-by-play reel but one that got me in the door and um and so arizona was was fun i made i made lifelong friends i will always look back fondly on that period of time for so many reasons outside of broadcasting but in broadcasting it was a chance to just learn everything i could and do everything i could so that five years down the road when they asked me to do something it wasn't the first time i was ever doing it and i I truly believe that that is invaluable number five corpus christi texas i mean that was that was the first that was the first stop um once i actually decided i was going to do this professionally uh and then it became a place that i didn't i never expected i would be there that long but i wound up staying there for seven years and so it turned into so much more than just a stop uh for a job it's where i met my wife um it's it's it will forever be home because of that i still have family there and we still go back and the organization will always be special to me but that was i mean that was really the beginning of all of this where it it really went from a dream to a path i had no idea how long that path would be or what it would look like or where it would take me but but that was that was where it began number six and you and i can share a lot as far as what we have in common with how special this place is anchorage alaska I loved it. I loved it so much more than I ever thought I would. 
I, candidly, you you got to take the job in a different circumstance than I did. Mm-hmm. I had never been to Alaska. You kind of knew what the Aces were. You knew what Sullivan Arena was. You knew that organization compared to other organizations. Um, and, and I didn't. I did my research, but I didn't know it firsthand from experience. So when I got the job offer... It wasn't an easy decision to take it. I knew it was the best thing for my career. And I knew that it was it was said to be a well-run organization. But I was I was really reluctant to take it. And I kind of went. I, I, I mentioned earlier I had just gotten engaged. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just me going. It was a package decision with my wife. She was leaving her home. She was leaving a really good job and, and terrific friends we both were leaving close people in our lives and and we weren't just leaving that but we were going to siberia we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into but the job and the thought of what it could be made it worthwhile to take that leap and i'm so happy i did because i never would have known what i was missing everything i wanted it to be professionally it was and then some I mean, it provided me with TV experience that helped accelerate things once I got down to Dallas. And again, I didn't know that was part of the plan, but it was just one more thing that I had on my resume. And um, the additional things that I was doing as a VP of operations for the team, I, that that helped cultivate some relationships that have proved to be influential and, and, and special in my life. Um, so professionally it was it was better than i thought it would be but i knew it would be good the other part of it i i honestly felt like it was a prison sentence and i was going to put my time in get what i needed out of the job and get out of dodge as quickly as i could and it couldn't have been further from that i fell in love with it instantly so did my wife when she got up there um i i got a job in the National Hockey League three years after going to Alaska. And me and my wife were heartbroken when we jumped on the plane to leave. Hmm. That is, I mean, I can't possibly give it a more succinct telling testimony of how we felt about that. I was was literally achieving a dream come true, and I was heartbroken to leave. It was, in those three years I spent there, I saw things and did things that I never in a million years thought I'd ever get to see and experience. And I am so happy that, that the road led me there because it was like it was truly the experience of a lifetime. Back to a place where, of course, you called home and your wife, Andy, number seven, Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I mean, for all the reasons I talked about earlier, like this, if, if Corpus Christi was the start, this was like this was the end. Um, I, I, no one knows what the future holds and where things go, but but it was the end of that that path. It was the end of the the route to the NHL, and um, and again, for all the reasons I laid out earlier, it, it's pretty spectacular that that this is where it was because I was so happy to just make it to the NHL, but I'm such a big fan of Dallas right now. And, um, and I just, I mean, we can rewind the tape <laughs> and go back for all the reasons I said <laughs> earlier, but it's like, it's, it's a fantastic place to call home. I'm, I'm very, very thrilled to be here. Number eight, Jason Walsh. He was the guy who hired me and he, uh, at the time was the vice president 
of broadcasting. He was also the producer for the telecast for the stars. He, he was, he was a Jack of all trades in the organization and he hired me as a radio host and I didn't know him. I always felt, um, going through the ranks that if I ever got to the NHL, it would be some relationship somewhere that, that I had that I made along the way because it just always felt like it was much more a question of, of who you know rather than what you know. And I think in a lot of cases it is. Um, for me, it wasn't. Uh, I, I was actually put in touch with Jason about just something. I had a general broadcasting question and a contact put me in touch with someone who put me in touch with him. You know what it's like. It's mm-hmm. six degrees of broadcasting separation. So I called him to ask him um, this question, totally unrelated to, to any sort of, of job that they were looking for, and I didn't get him. I left, a, I left a message on his voicemail, and within 24 hours, they posted that they were looking for a, um, a radio host. So he calls me back and he's like, I don't know if you've seen this post, but after we talked, he said, you know, maybe you'd be interested in this. And we started talking and went through the steps and I was and wound up taking the job and coming down here. And he then became, for all intents and purposes, my boss for a few years. And at every turn, he, he became more than that. He became a friend and he became a guy I could go to for advice because he was so well respected and liked within the industry. And because he had done so many things, he'd worked for a network, he'd worked on a telecast, he'd worked for an office, like he's worked with different broadcasters. He, he has a wealth of experience. He's now the executive producer at Fox Sports Southwest, which is a tremendous opportunity for him and he's killing it there. And um, But he's still a guy, even though he's, he's now on the network we broadcast with, but he's not with the team. He's still the first guy that I would ever call if, if I had a question because he's such a good person. And I, I, I think of all the people in my path to get here, he probably is the guy that I feel played the biggest role because he gave me the opportunity and then kept giving me more and more opportunities and, and has just been uh, a really important figure in my life and a really great person. Number nine, your wife, Andy. She's my best friend. She's my everything. Um, none of this happens without her. It, it, it's funny because you – you dream about what it's going to be like to go on this path. Mm. And you always know that you'll likely inject a family along the way, but it's more the thought of a family rather than the specifics of a family and uh, what it would be like to travel and what it would be like to uproot and go from city to city the way this this job in this industry requires of you. And it was like Andy was tailor-made to be that perfect person. And just somehow I was lucky enough that she fell out of the sky and, and sat next to me at a restaurant one night and I got to meet her. Um, because I couldn't imagine going through this with with someone else. Um, to get here and then actually being here and all of the, the different kind of craziness that it is. Um, but she's, she's so special for so many reasons and, and she's so selfless and she's so supportive and she's so incredible 
and like none of this happens without her and i think that was one of the things that when when it finally happened when i got this job a couple years ago it was it was so much more special to get to experience it with her because it, it really did feel like we we got it it wasn't me I, i've met her very early into my stay in Corpus Christi. So almost all of this journey happened with her, not independent of her. So so it, it, it never once felt like I finally got the job or I, I finally did it. it. It was we did. And um, and I wouldn't want it any other way. She's she's everything. Finally, number 10. The Razor himself, Daryl Ray. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I got really, really lucky that I get to work with what I believe to be the best color commentator in the NHL. Um, he is wildly entertaining, and he's such a good analyst of the game. And it's like if he was only one of those – then it would be already elite. And the fact that he's both in the same package, I knew <laughs> I knew going into getting this job, everybody told me, like every, network execs at Fox, people, broadcasters at, at different, um, different cities for different teams, fans, people in the Stars organization, everybody said, you have the best broadcast in the NHL that you're walking into with the producer, with the director, with the team behind you in the truck and with Razor who's as big a part of that as anything all you have to do is not screw it up and um, no pressure and then, and then, <laughs> how's that for, for no pressure um, but it's true I mean it's true Like I, I laugh every single broadcast multiple times I use my cough button more for a laugh button than <laughs> the former. Um, it's it's fun to be on the air with him. It's fun to see the game the way he sees it. It's fun to listen to the way he describes it. Um, it's very – it's not lost on me either. Like all the things that we were talking about, it's – I feel very fortunate that I know that unless I screw it up, I'm going on the air, and, and we've got a chance to put together a really great broadcast every single night, and I, I will always know that he is a huge, huge reason why. Time now for the live here. Josh Bogorod, our guest here on Voices Up Close. First off, got to ask you, the most that Daryl Ray has ever made you laugh. When did that happen? It wasn't on the air. I probably won't be able to talk about it. Um, it's not honestly. It's not even one specific time. Like when, if we all, if we all go out for dinner or drinks on the road, or we're all hanging out before a game, or even the things that he's doing, the the few seconds before we we actually go and the red light comes on, because he's always. In the, in the press box, he's making the technical directors laugh, the stage managers, the um, like, the guys in the truck. Uh, it, he, he's it, You're not going to hit a quota and it's going to end. If you're around him and if you're listening to him, it's, 
it's going to be funny. It's going to be entertaining, and, and it is. How long do you feel it's appropriate to prepare for a game broadcast for just one night on the air? Um, that's a that's an interesting question, Mike. I I'm I am a serial over preparer. Hmm. I, I feel like that's the best way. That's the most comfortable that I will walk into a broadcast, and I always do it with full knowledge. Ninety five percent of it will never see the light of day. Um, but the way I've described it to people is when you're studying for a test. If you know that 20 questions are going to be on the test, but they come from a pool of 500, you got to study the 500. And then the 20 are going to come and you're going to be like, man, I spent a lot of time studying on 490 or 480 questions that, that never were asked. But you didn't know which were going to be asked. And that's how I go about it. Um, I, never, I never once in my career have ever gotten to a game, ever, where I feel like, okay, I'm fully prepared. I'm done. Hmm. I can't learn anymore. Close the book. Here we go. It's just that I ran out of time. Eventually, 7 o'clock is going to come. Hmm. The buck is going to drop. And what I have is what I have. But I make sure it's a lot. And that's that's an interesting balance when you are doing three to four games a week for six months. Because it, um, I mean, it's a lot. And they stack up. And then with the travel involved and, you know, you're getting into cities late and you're all of a sudden you're seeing Eastern Conference teams that you haven't seen either all season or you only see them twice a year and you haven't seen them in four months. And now it's after the trade deadline and <laughs> they're they're in last place. Blow it all up. Their, their entire roster is turned over since the last meeting. Um, you, you have to find your sweet spot for you. But I do a ton of preparation. Um, I, I do a ton of preparation and I try and mix the preparation between things that that won't change and then things that do change. For example, if you learn about someone's backstory um, on and off the ice information, if a player is drafted third overall, then they're always drafted third overall. If they scored 50 goals back in 2016, they've always scored 50 goals back in 2016. But maybe they've got points in seven of their last eight and they're the hottest player on their team. That's going to be different. And I think that having a good mixture, so you always have notes that you can rely on that are interesting about a player, about a team, about a city, about an organization. But then you also have topical things that ensure that every broadcast is different from the prior one. It's just about having that mix. And in hockey, the one thing that you absolutely cannot skimp on is memorization of mm. the roster. And that is, I mean, I will start looking at teams days out um, because that's the one thing that uh, you can you can fill in the blanks on everything else. And I know, just because I know how I am, I'm going to go into every single broadcast adequately prepared. But the one area where you better be above everything else, you better know your rosters if you're going to call a hockey game. Whether it's spotting boards or notes, you more of a handwritten guy or a computer guy? Both. And I actually have two different templates, and I, I like having both of them. Hmm. Um, I've, got, I've got spotting boards that I do on computer, and then I have a handwritten uh, score sheet that I keep with me that has a spot for notes, um, and it is – 
by the end of it, it looks like looks like a, a prop from a beautiful mind. <laughs> it's got so much scribble on it and things that probably only make sense to me. Um, in preparation, those two things. So I've got, I've got my spotting board that is pre-printed, and that obviously, you know, you have you have with you when you go to the arena and that doesn't change you can make marks on it that's color coded and and has organization um different organizational layouts and then my handwritten stuff which is done um as i arrive actually in the press box and then i can add and change notes as i go along and and i really i really do like the feeling of having both i don't know if you feel this way mike Hmm. You go through all the preparation of all this stuff, and I find that putting the boards together makes you ironically need them less. Because it's building the board that almost just like when I look at my spotting board, it's normally not to look to learn something it's just to refresh was that number 43 or 42 and and i like in terms of goals or points or uh did that happen in february or did that happen in march because the like the building of it you're you're basically like writing a, a book report for every single game on on these subjects so you're learning it as you're compiling this sheet so i go to it for reference but it's not something i'm looking at constantly but if i didn't do it I wouldn't have it, so there's the iron. Funny where there's some games, I mean, and I'll I'll call a period, maybe even two periods, and I think – did I even look at my spotting board at all? Yeah. And yeah. It, it's almost like you're, you're better off building the safety net rather than not having to, you know, rely on it. And it's almost better than, you know, not building on it, trying to just wing it, and then all of a sudden, boom – you have no information or no player, no number, and then you have no safety net. And then what happens next? Fall flat right on your face. Yep. And it's, it's so in a, in a telecast, before every telecast, uh, 90 minutes before we go on the air, mm-hmm. the producer down in the truck gets on headset and me and Razor get on headset and we do what's called a walkthrough. And we go through all of the elements that we have built in advance of this broadcast and an element means any graphic that we have built for a story that we want to tell or any package people don't think about it when they're watching a game at home if you're not in the broadcasting industry but if they're showing the history of you know the stars playing the blues and they're going through seven years of highlights someone had to cut all those highlights build it together and so you're putting all this that's a lot of work that goes into that and then there are the packages that have to be built in game because here is a look at jamie ben's night and it shows his hits and his assists and his goals and those are built by really talented people in the truck that obviously you can't pre-plan for because you didn't know they were going to happen Mm -hmm. but we go through all of the pre-produced elements before the game in our walkthrough and it's it's highlights of players highlights of past meetings flashbacks to signature moments that happened two years ago the last time they met earlier this season the clips of the when these two guys were teammates at bowling green this was footage of them playing all these things that you know could come up but you also know probably won't and then you go through that with graphics and then you also know that 
a lot of your airtime is going to be spent on graphics and packages that have to be built in game yep. because the storylines develop. And so we go through all of this stuff and then we finish up and like Razor will always make the comment because we've, we've looked at like 25 different things. He'll be like, well, I guess you never know when there's going to be a two hour glass delay in a game. <laughs> <laughs> because because you know that with the speed of hockey in a broadcast, there is zero chance, zero chance we get through most of this, let alone all of this, because the story's going to go whichever way the story goes. But if you're not prepared, then it's going to preclude you from having this incredible clip of these two guys like Jamie Benn versus Alex Petrangelo going at each other's throats for five years. So all of a sudden they get into a skirmish and you have it and the producer can just say, run this right now. And in 20 seconds, it's spot on. And all of that work was perfect for then because you added to the story. So when you're a broadcaster, all of that research pays off when there's that note that you were ready for and all of a sudden the game just leads you to it. But if you try to start forcing it, it's like, I did this research, I'm going to damn well make sure someone hears it. That's when you're probably forcing it too much. You just kind of have to prepare and, and acknowledge that you'll be ready whatever comes but mm, a lot of it's just not going to come. There's what? always this moment when, when you play a team for the last time in an NHL season, you close up your spotting board, you close up your book on that team, and you're like, well, I never got that one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's always next season because the game just never took you there. Where have you often found the best stories in your career? Stories to tell? On the air. Like, Yeah, stories on the air. Um that's that's an interesting question um i don't know that there's one place i think you never know when you're gonna find that Hmm. sometimes it's talking to a guy in a locker room um you know after practice at morning skate and and sometimes the best ones are stories that you didn't even set out to to tell that story Mm -hmm. you were talking to him about something else and then the conversation just morphs and turns into something else and and all of a sudden a player tells you something that you could never find in a box score that you could never look up in an encyclopedia and um and and now you have that information and so i i remember we had a depth defenseman the last couple years his name is taylor fadoon Mm -hmm. and he most nights he's a healthy scratch as likable a guy as you're gonna find and he uh he scored a goal in a game that he was playing and we were talking about his reaction and he hasn't scored a ton of goals in his nhl career but it wasn't his first one and i asked him about the goal and then i asked him about the reaction because something about it was noteworthy And I said, do you remember if I told you all of your goals and I brought them up? Could you remember who they were scored against? And he didn't he didn't wait a second. He said, I could tell you every single one. I could tell you where (laughs) I was. I could tell you who the other goalie was. I could tell you the moment of the game. And then he laughed and he said, when you've scored as few as I have, it's not that big of a trick. But, but it was a conversation we had sometime like in November. And then all of a sudden, 
Like, I was ready for whenever he scored a goal in February to tell that story. And and it was it just something that, that was cool to have. And it wasn't this earth shattering story. It yeah. wasn't it, it wasn't a note that like the broadcast depended on it. But it was interesting that that only could have formed from a conversation. But also with with so many journalism outlets now, you find great stories all over the place yeah. in print and online. Um, some of them are more widely publicized than others. Um, but I, I, just, I don't think there's any shortage. I don't think there's any right way to do what we do. I, I think as long as you can provide something informative and entertaining, then I think you're doing a service. And that's what I've tried to do. I, I've tried to inform and entertain every time I've gone on the air. But I've never said, like, I have to get this story in or I have to get this story in or I have to get this story in you see where the night takes you. Some obviously are bigger than others that you probably should focus more on, on making it a point to, to tell. Um, when a player comes back, like Stephen Johns did from a 22-month absence mm. this year, and, and the personal battles that that he was waging to get to that point, like that's a story you're telling. Um, but but other stories, it's it, you you find them where you find them and. Sometimes they're used that night, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes statistics help you tell a story. Sometimes personalities help you tell a story. And I, I just think that as long as you're adding something, they all have their place. Relationships certainly matter, and uh, I think it often shows in the tone of an interview, especially with coaches. How long does it take for you to feel comfortable and mesh your personality with theirs, you know, in the goal, number one, to build a relationship, and number two, also to find out as much effective information as you can for a broadcast each night? Yeah, that's probably interesting, and, and it probably depends on who you are and who you're talking to. Um, I always personally feel very comfortable just just talking to people. Um, I also I, I like to be respectful of the fact that these players they they're they're doing a job, and and obviously talking to the media is part of that job. But they're creatures of habit, and their focus is elite level focus. And I always want to be respectful of that, and and not not step on that so you know it depends on the setting at, at practice when you don't have a game that day I probably am okay taking a little bit more time than I will on a morning skate when I know they have to get out of there grab a bite take a nap and, and be back at the rink at a certain day so you find you find your time to, to talk with them but I think in the end you, you, you start to learn Sometimes it's just a natural personality. Sometimes it's a language barrier because somebody is from a different part of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but some people enjoy talking to the media more than others. And um, some people are better at giving you information than others. And they don't always go hand in hand. Some of the people who are really good at giving tremendous stories and information don't love doing it. And some people who are really good at, uh, at, at like they love doing it don't they don't always give you a ton. Yeah. <laughs> so so but I think in the end, Mike, it's you talk to people, right? Yeah. Uh, I talk to people when there's a reason to talk to them. 
Sometimes it's about hockey. Sometimes it's about something else. But I always want to be respectful of their space. I always want to be respectful of their time. And um, and that's that's kind of the only two hard, fast rules I have. And then everything else just kind of you get what you get. That's one of the things I admire about you, and this applies on and off the air, your attention to detail and the ability to put it into clear and concise words. Uh, it's wielded a ton of influence here, you know, especially in the direction of your career. So now that you reach the top at the NHL level, how do you define goal setting for the rest of your career? It's an interesting question. And, and, and first off, thank you very much. And what you said is, is very nice and, it absolutely is is mutually sent back the other way. I'm, I'm happy. Thank you. I'm happy our paths crossed. Yeah, they did. Um, I, I I feel like before I got here, goal setting kind of took on a different shape for me. I I started with one goal, and it was a lofty goal. And again, as I've said numerous times the odds were not in my favor. This was not likely to happen. I still pinch myself that it did. Um, And then along the way, you quickly realize that there are smaller goals in front of you and the only way to achieve the larger one uh, are to just achieve the smaller ones. So then when you get to a position that, that I got to and I'm currently in, I think you kind of just lean on that and... My goal every night is to make that broadcast my best broadcast. Hmm. And I know that I'm not going to, but that's going to be what I try to do. And and then my goal from a, a more macro perspective is to just generally get better. And you might say, well, how? I don't necessarily know I, I, in what way. I don't necessarily know, but just get better. There's always there's always room to get better. Mm. Get better because I find a preparation method that I wasn't using before that works. All all my career, I, I still kind of morph with my spotting boards and, and my scoreboards and how I choose to do things. At the crux of it, my preparation it all remains the same, but maybe there's just small adjustments I make because it's more efficient. It's better. The way I call a game. Um, things things that I hear that you know I, I don't like in my call focus on those and get better ways to introduce something new that the audience didn't have last year I, I, I don't have specifics and I hope to be doing this long enough where it's a long list but I think my goal is now that I'm not trying to get to the NHL I'm just trying to get better and set those little goals that in a roundabout way helped get me here, just do those forever. And I kind of try and do that in my personal life as well. Just assess where you are, be happy with where you are, um, and and take stock of where you are and, and know that even if things are going great, there's probably a way to improve on it and attempt to do that. And that's what I'll do. Well, we went on for a healthy amount of time and tapping into your heartbeat and your mind behind this business and in life is like reaching a gold mine. So I can't thank you enough here for your time. And I know that you got dad duties here to get back to. Lastly, how far are Aaron and Mason going for their sports careers? <laughs> that's a good, I don't know. 
I don't know where where they're going to go. Um, I d- it's funny because they both have tried their hand at broadcasting in our living room. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they, they both have tried their hand on the ice and on the playing field for various sports. I think it's I think it's too too early to call. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I, I know that whatever they do, I'm going to do exactly what my parents did for me, and that's just support them and not not carve their path for them. I'll let them do their own, and uh, I, I'm really excited to see what they wind up doing. I will caution them. <laughs> they will. I promise you this, Mike. They will have a more. Um, they will have a more accurate idea of what getting into broadcasting means <laughs> than, than I did when I, when I decided to throw this dart. Um, but if it's something they want to do, then I'll support them. And if, if it's something they don't, then I'm, I'm just fine with that. But without a doubt, based on how long we've gone here, I haven't had a road trip in quite some time. I know for sure I'm going in and I'm about to do dinner time, bath time, and bedtime now because <laughs> uh, I, I owe some time for this. Well, we got a rock star broadcaster that we just talked to, a rock star dad, so well, the boys are definitely in very good hands with uh, you and Andy. Josh, can't thank you enough once again here for joining us here, and we're going to cross paths soon again, my friend, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I look forward to it as well. Thanks so much, Mike. This was a lot of fun and terrific work on this. All right, one-of-a-kind human being and play caller Josh Bogorod, broadcast voice of the Dallas Stars joining us on the podcast. He's a testimony to work ethic, human relations, perseverance, and even a little adventurous taste. Let's remember, more often than not, that dream job is going to happen to you. That's if you stick to those principles just like Josh. So can't thank Josh enough for his time. Big thanks also, Sports Radio 96.7 FM and 1310 AM, the ticket for the audio, Brandon Colston, Sean Barry, and more for their help. Again, you can find us right here at 24-7, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Find me on Twitter at Benton underscore Mike. Thanks for pushing play. This is Voices Up Close. Talk soon. I'm Mike Benton. Catch you next time.